Can life be made exclusively of successes? Can you find fulfillment in a job that pays well but is not aligned with your values? Does every postdoc get to be a professor? In this episode of Papa PhD, we address all these important questions and much more as we talk with Abel Polese about his academic career, about all the other things he has going on, and about how he glues everything together to achieve balance. Do what you want to do now. It's like, just remember even you. Remember when you were 17, 11 months, and like 28 days? And you were like, in two days, my parents are going to let me do whatever I want because I'm going to be 18. Then two days pass, and nothing changes. Because for you, you are 18. But for them, you're just two days older. So it, don't, do, don't, don't kind of postpone what you, what you, what you want to do simply because you think, oh, I'm going to get tenure and then I'm going to have fun. If you don't learn to have fun every single day of your life, you just forget about it. And then you're going to moan the rest of your life. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. If you have a question or a theme that you'd like to see covered in our interviews, you can now simply go to anchor.fm forward slash Papa PhD and record a message to be featured in one of our future episodes. And be sure to follow Papa PhD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. So this week, we're talking with Abel Polese. Abel Polese is a researcher, trainer, writer, manager, and fundraiser dealing with development and capacity building in Europe and Asia. He's also interested in science excellence, open science, and alternative indicators to measure science performance. And he is the author of The Scopus Diaries and The Illogics of Academic Survival, a short guide to design your own strategy and survive bibliometrics, conferences, and unreal expectations in academia. A reflection on academic life, research careers, and the choices and obstacles young scholars face at the beginning of their career. Welcome to the show, Abel. Thank you. So uh, I would like now to let you talk a little bit more about yourself, about your experience going through your PhD and uh, about how you, you navigated that path from your PhD to today. My PhD, I'm actually preparing a post uh, for a blog about how not to do a PhD. So my PhD could be taken as kind of negative, kind of, the, 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 you know, you have best practices and you have worst practices. So my PhD has been very much of a jigsaw. It's a kind of worst uh, practice. I mean, you have best practices and you have worst practices. So my PhD was, I mean, I dropped out of my PhD studies. Uh, I initially kind of entered because somebody said that the PhD is the, the latest thing you should do. I mean, the, the ultimate demonstration of your kind of intellectual capacities. And I was working with lots of political science at the time. So I, I enrolled in, in, in a PhD in IR. Excellent. So you were explaining how someone told you that uh, uh, a P the PhD was the ultimate the ultimate uh, step, you know, to to go f to go to if you were if you wanted to show you know to show or to prove your intellectual capacities. 
Yes, I will do this. Uh, I was doing an MA, a master's degree, and then I was saying, what shall I do? And most of my colleagues would go into kind of internships and other things. And I, was, I decided that I wanted to try give it a try at PhD. So I applied to several universities in the UK. I got accepted and I started a PhD. But I was not very able to progress. So in the end, my advisor said, Abdul, are you really sure you want to continue with this? And I said, no. So I dropped out and I stayed for one year just doing other things. I mean, I went to Ukraine. I started working on, uh, I mean, I started doing research, but without without a PhD, without being enrolled. At the end of the year, I started looking for another PhD. And this time I decided that I would go uh, for a PhD in French. Why in French? Because everyone is working in English. And I say, well, if I have to, I mean, I want to be able to to use the channels that French uh, academia has, which are completely different. So I started, but the problem with the, with this was that I found somebody in the end. I mean, I chose a very good school. And the person who was supervising me was not really an, um, an expert on the subject. So up to now, I do not know why she agreed to supervise me. Because if I have such such a person, I would just say, okay, I'm not able to supervise you. Uh, just go to someone else. And I could suggest someone else. But... And also, she was very kind of advanced in her career. I mean, I understand if I'm your first PhD student, then you're like, okay, I, will, I mean, I'm keen to get a PhD student. But I think she was supervising those in the PhD students. So what, what's the difference between one more and one less? So I couldn't really get any decent feedback for some time. And then I got some, I got advised to get a second supervisor. And the second supervisor just, let me down after a few months. Uh, so I was like, what should I do? And finally, I found somebody who said, okay, I'll take care. I'll look after you. I changed university. I moved to Brussels <clears throat> and I finished my PhD in Brussels. But I, I was in French as well. Uh, because most of the comments of the first supervisor were, well, your French is not good enough. And I was like, yes, but there is also something beyond. I mean, the the... She was like, you should improve. They say, okay, I can improve. You're working always, you're always working in English. <clears throat> now, um, the PhD in itself was not very long compared to kind of North American standards because it would be five years. I mean, after five years, I had my degree. Uh, the the interesting part, that, I mean, the part that could be interesting, which is the, the transition between PhD life and uh, kind of the the work, the job market is that in this, in my case, this, the, the trauma of the post-PhD trauma didn't happen to me until a few years after. So when I finished my PhD, I actually had a job and it was a very good job. So uh, for some, I mean, having been working, um, I mean, my PhD was, in, I mean, okay, you were asking about the social science. In the social sciences, many PhD do not have scholarships. So you just have to do whatever you can to survive. Just like every, I mean, many other people, I was looking for ways to do things. So I did a, I got a very, very well-paid job for summer, and I was, I was using this money for my kind of research year, and then I was doing, doing consultancies, trainings. Uh, in the end, I was basically working and doing a PhD at the same time, which when it came to entering the job market, I was able to enter the job market without a PhD, 
just because I had much more research experience even compared to people with a PhD. So I landed this job, which I would never imagine I could get because it was it was like for almost native German speakers, and I'm not. I mean, they, they wanted kind of fluent German, and I applied, and they answered me with an invitation letter in German, and then I had to, I had to kind of, I spent like two or three weeks using the dictionary to communicate with them. And at the time of the interview, uh, I, I kind of, I showed my card and I say, well, listen, I'm not able to work in German, but I'm ready to kind of work on it. And they say, it's fine. So my job interview was half in German, half in English. And after that, I got this job. It was well-paid one. It was a stable one. So for two years, I didn't worry about anything. And then the famous uh, Horizon 20, no, the FP7 started in the European Commission. So they were giving individual grants to um, kind of PhD students and postdocs. I applied in the very first year and there was not much competition, so I got it. So this fellowship allowed me to go from my, I mean, allowed me to go from my last year of PhD into two years of postdoc. So I didn't experience any transition because actually the PhD, and even when my PhD defense was delayed, I didn't care because I didn't have to enter the job market. I was like, okay, one month more. Okay. That part was, was you, you already had that in your, in your pocket, let's say. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was extremely smooth, but what was difficult was after, because after three, after five years in a bubble, I woke up to discover that my kind of, uh, my academic strategy had been completely wrong. I mean, I was not competitive for, I was in the UK where department, they look for very good specializations. And those specializations, I didn't have any specialization. I mean, I was doing kind of area studies. I mean, there was a, a, a special region, but nobody could classify me as an anthropology, sociology. And so I was not of interest of any department because they wouldn't be able to be competitive with me I don't know, with the national kind of evalu- um, evaluation exercise. I was of a kind of a little bit of everything, which is good in some cases, but not in that one. So I spent, I kind of submitted 60 applications when my my kind of fellowship was ending, and I didn't get a single uh, response. I got two invitations for interviews in two places that are very, very, I mean, there was really not secondary, but even third, I mean, very far from the imagination of many people. Um, and then no job at all. So what I had to do was to look around, and this is where my transition started because I decided that uh, I mean I, I eventually I found a postdoc in Estonia, which is where I kind of moved academically because there was it was a time when Estonia was getting lots of money, so they would invite lots of foreign scientists. Uh, the salary was like one third of what I had in uh, before, so I was a bit worried. But at the same time, I had a three-year contract and I had a um, uh, promise that I would be also employed permanently if, if everything goes well. Um, and also, this was also good because I didn't want to move from one six-month postdoc to another six-month postdoc and so on. So my strategy was to, to look for something long-term, and it was a bit longer, so really I was getting very anxious in the end because I was applying, 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 not getting anything. But the real transition was not this one. The real transition was that I decided that also 
because I was very worried, I would never have to repeat this thing. So I would not depend on a single employer. And what I did was differentiate my uh, my kind of uh, jobs, my works. So I started applying for funding at a kind of for major funding, and eventually, after almost a year of rejection, I got one, and then I got another one, and then another one, and then another one. Mm-hmm. This was in Estonia. There was already when I was based in Estonia. Actually, the the the, the news about the fellowship came, and then like three weeks. After there was a news about I won some small, I mean, relatively small project. It was like two hundred thousand euro uh, for the next four years, but with, which meant I had already a basis and already had started my kind of career in terms of fundraising, in terms of research, and I was the PI of this con- of this uh, project. So I was relatively young. I was only two years after my PhD, and I was already PI. In, in a project, which in the social sciences is not very, very common. Mm-hmm. And this was in the domain that you had studied. Was it, was it a follow-up of what you'd done in your PhD? Uh, yes, but what I was doing, I mean, the specialization I had is more regional than, um, than disciplinary. Okay. So there is a part of the social, uh, social sciences where you call it just area studies, and you study an area regardless of the discipline. So okay, there will okay. be a mixture of sociology, anthropology, political science, economics. So sometimes for some grants, you kind of uh, put the accent on uh, on the economic part and some others on the geography part. Um, so it was about civil society in the former Soviet Union. And my PhD was about identity, but it was also in the same region. And because uh, we're going to talk about uh, your book, The Scopus Diaries, later on, uh, but in the book you talk about niching. Was this when you started to 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 gain or to learn your your skills in niching? Well, the Scopus, I think. I mean, I have um, I published recently a short blog for the Thesis Whisperer where I I say I see the the origin of the Scopus Diaries is the month when I was very very anxious, so I start the blog with a. In May 20, 2011, I woke up for the first time in the grip of a panic attack. So it was really like the moment of my life was, was really, really worried. And this happened twice in May 2011, and I said, I don't want to do this anymore. I mean, I don't want to be in this, this situation anymore. So I would guess that start thinking strategically about your life was more or less there, even if I already had started applying for grants here and there a bit earlier. But I mean, understanding that you cannot rely on one single donor or one single person and even on one single employer because the employer, then your line manager changes and everything changes. Uh, and I didn't want to spend my life complaining about my line manager. So I say, I'm going to be in a situation where if I don't like something, I can say I'm leaving. And then it's going to be their problem, not my problem. <laughs> so uh, so this when you had this, this, thing, this anxiety moment, uh, the way you coped with it, I, is, and tell me if I am understanding well, is you you really uh, focused and 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 tried to design a solution to not be in that in that position anymore. Uh, yeah, I mean, you cannot cope with anxiety. You have to find. You just have to calm down. But uh, that was the moment when I, I mean, was possibly the moment when I realized that I didn't want to. I didn't want the standard career path because the standard career path, especially with my profile, would be very difficult to to fund regularly. Okay. So and so, what happened 
after. So you started having success getting funding. Um, how, what were the, what, what happened next? Uh, how did the next steps come up, and and uh, and what were the things that you did after after that? Well, um, in 2012, I was working in Estonia, and as I said, I was very I was a bit worried about. I mean, I was not worried about stability. But I was doing this thing. I was forward and back from Estonia and um, Scotland, where my family still was. Uh, and because the salary was much lower, I was like, okay, I'm doing consultancy here and there. But my revenue, I mean, my income is not regular. So I was a bit worried. And then I said, okay, maybe I want to do something else. I got a call from the European Commission to work as an economist uh, for, the, for the DG research. And this is something that many people, which is in my environment, at least where I, they would dream about. Because it's a stable job. You got social security. You got the salary is much higher than, I mean, it's much higher. It's higher than the, than academic, I mean, relative academic ones with a, I mean, it's comparable to, I mean, it's a, it's a good salary. And then it's a nine to five job. So once you finish your job, you don't have to, I mean, it's basically illegal to contact you beyond your working hours. If you, if you left the, the office, you authorized not to enter the phone. I mean, your boss can get angry, but they cannot do anything. And then, said, and then it was a contract. It was like one plus two plus two plus one. So if I, I mean, because of the reform. So if I wanted, I could have stayed six years in the European Commission with this kind of very, very stable life. Like you work from Monday to Friday, you go home, you play with the kids, and then for weekends you organize yourself. Sometimes you you do an escape somewhere, you buy a plane, or you just go to the countryside and you buy a house and in a few years here. But after a few months, I was like, I'm not going to stay here. I mean, and this is with all respect for all the people that managed staying there. But I am somebody who is, has very kind of, I like, I have lots of ideas and I want to realize my ideas and I want to work on my ideas. And uh, staying there was more about Okay, we have to work to one thing. We're going to go slowly. And once we're going to get there, it's going to be there. And it was basically just not compatible with my way of life. Also, because I'm very happy to work at weekends, but then sometimes on Wednesday, I'll just disappear and do my own things. Um, and in, a, in an organization where your work is controlled, at least in my unit, was by the number of hours you sit on... Um, on your chair or in your office, this was not what I wanted to do. So after a year, I left. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a good fit for you? Uh, no. I mean, I think it. I have some many good friends, I mean, some very good friends working there and they kind of, they found their, their niche. I just understood that, I mean, when I was leaving, I was, I was kind of scared. I mean, my colleagues would not understand. I would say, I'm leaving. Are you changing department? No, I'm leaving. Are you changing organization, unit? No, I'm leaving. And I was scared to leave behind all those things because in six years, I have many friends who have become permanent. So they, they know they're going to be going to have a pension. They're going to be, they're just... Yeah, security. There's a lot of security, yeah. And I was like, no, I'm leaving this for something that I don't know, but I think I have to do it. And okay, I was also lucky because meanwhile, uh, one of my projects that I had applied a few years before because of bureaucratic kind of, uh, I mean, because of bureaucracy, it had been funded very late. So there was a project that I submitted before going there, and then it had been so long to negotiate. 
that it started more or less the time when I left the, the EU. So what I could do was leaving the, leave the EU for another job. It was I was not leaving the EU just to, to be unemployed. Even if I think there is some unemployment, I mean, there were some unemployment benefits, but I didn't want them. I just say, okay, I'm just going to go. And my, my goal is not to make money. My goal is to, to have fun. I mean, life is one. And then I started working where I am now, which is the, for Dublin in Ireland. Uh, but the money was not enough to employ me full time. So I also had the permission to do other things simply because, I mean, I was, at, the time, at the time I was 50%. So I could do other things. And I was, I just, I was going around trying to, I was getting consultancies, I was getting things here and there. But the late motive was that I was never interested in money as a first thing. So I would not do things for money. I would do things for because I liked them and because I saw there was a reason to do that. And then at some point, money would come. So I done many jobs just for free. I mean, they would say, I'll pay you for, I mean, I remember, I'll pay you a trip to Indonesia. Okay, fine, I'll come. But we don't, you cannot pay for your working days. It's okay. Uh, I'll pay you for to go there. And then I can pay you a nice meal. I can pay you a nice hotel. That's all. Say, okay. And we do. In other cases, it was like, no, I'll pay you. And then we also have some money left and we can pay you a small honorarium. Okay, I'm happy with this. But my motivation was just, I need, I mean, I call them things that are fun and useful. So they are fun to do and useful. They bring some use. That could be experience. That could be money. That could be new friends. That could be new contacts. I never measure things in, in monetary terms. And I say, well, as long as I, I can eat and as long as I'm happy, why should I care? <laughs> Interesting, and so basically, in that, in that, uh, in those activities, you 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 kind of built your CV. That was what you were gaining, right? In a way. Yeah, yeah. I was doing so many different things beyond academia that, of course, to stay in the loop, I had to publish. And anyway, I like writing, so I don't mind. Uh, but then I was, they were asking me, "Do you want to? Do you want to develop this thing and this thing?" And I don't know. The number of things I've done is quite. Diverse. I mean, I've been, I mean, just to give you a couple of examples, I've developed a training package for young women on financial literacy. So, uh, how to use, I mean, how to use non formal educational methods to teach young women in Africa and in Asia how is to open a small business. If they know, even if, imagine they dropped out of school, so you cannot just say, okay, I'm going to give you all the mathematics and so on. You have to explain the, in principle, complex concepts, but in a way which is understandable by someone who has dropped out of school, so they're not used to, to this kind of analytical knowledge. They might have, they might be very good at business, but it's just that they're not being framed in a, in a, in a, in a kind of, in a classical um, scholarization model. And this was very kind of rewarding, fun, it was paid very little for the amount of effort I put, but I was so happy to see the final result because they were working with an illustrator and the, the tool is now available in, in English, in French, in Spanish for free. And it's very, very kind of reader friendly. So um, I was very happy with this. Excellent. And, and uh, today, what's, what's your, what does your life, your professional life look like today? Oh, it's a chaos. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Okay, I have this, the stability comes from my academic job, which is not full-time and is not permanent. So I have money as long as my projects bring money in. Uh, but which means also that 
I also I have fewer obligations because not being a kind of a permanent faculty, I'm kind of exempted morally by a number of things from a number of things. Um, and also, I don't have access to a number of things, including uh, career progression. So I will never be a professor unless I change my strategy. But at the moment where I, where I am, I cannot go up and I cannot go down. I'm just stable. And I think even my salary cannot, cannot change. But uh, what changes is the amount of time that I have free because my employment is not 100%. And then I can just do other things. And other things mean... In this case, I mean, trainings, I'm developing a training on predatory journals. We are now trying to develop a statement and workshop on how to manage academic careers, not research careers, not academic careers. Um, I'm doing lots of freelance journal. I mean, not I'm writing small journalistic pieces or blogs, and I'm, I don't have to be paid. But at the same time, I'm building my profile, and it's fun. I really, I really enjoy writing. So as long as I can just learn to write by writing, I'm happy to do it for free. And then from time to time, you don't expect it, and somebody says, "Oh, actually, we're gonna pay you for this." I say, "Oh, that's great." Uh, and sometimes no. And this also gave me the time to to write the Scopus Diaries, uh, and to it's not just. The book because then it's all about the, the blogging and doing around the promotion the fact that whenever i go somewhere i i deliver at least one workshop on one of the topics and also the fact that i can allow myself to say well if you don't if you have no money to pay me it's fine i mean i never negotiate anything if they say sorry our university has no money i say it's fine i mean if i'm there what's the problem mm -hmm. so it looks like you found a solution where you are you are doing research, so you stayed close to your to your domain and your experience on that side. But you've given yourself you find a, a kind of a model where you've given yourself the freedom to develop uh, projects that that you love and that that give you satisfaction that that is not only monetary, and uh, and uh, that's very inspiring to me. I think uh, I think. Uh, especially for people uh, that that may be listening that are that are in the humanities in the social sciences um, you know uh, maybe think there's not there's no single way to to navigate your professional life and and i think uh, uh, you're you're a great example Abel. yes there's no single way and sometimes it's very hard because there, i i don't think there was any i didn't have any any role model i didn't have anyone who said oh you should go this way because if you if you go for a professorship or if you go for a job you know that this is the way you go. But my professional career was just about try this way. No, it didn't work. Okay, try this way. It didn't work. Try this way. It didn't work. So it's it's very unstable and it's very uh, difficult to navigate sometimes. But I have to say I'm I'm content with what I'm doing. So excellent. So uh, we're going to take a little pause, and then uh, on part two we're going to talk uh, exclusively about uh, your book, the Scopus Diaries, and uh, and about um, you know what you know what brought you to write it, and uh, and uh, even what's what's been your experience uh, promoting it, and what's been the reactions that you've been getting from it. Before going on with the interview, I want to thank you for listening to the show. If you like an episode and feel that it's helped you or inspired you in any way, share it with your friends. Maybe it will inspire them too. So welcome to part two of, of the interview with Abel Polese. Uh, and on, in part two, we're going to talk about uh, his book, The Scopus Diaries and the Illogics of Academic Survival. 
uh, a book that he wrote at this this moment of anxiety of not knowing what was coming next professionally in his career. Uh, just for the listeners out there, um, the titles of, of the main chapters are Writing, Creating, Procrastinating, Submitting, then Publishing, Negotiating, Advertising, Consolidating, uh, then Growing, Extending, Expanding, Multiplying, then Shining, Stand Out, Getting Visible, Fame in Academia, then Shining 2, Getting Even More Famous, then Niching, Balancing, Positioning, then Networking, Talking, Traveling, Moving Around, then Funding, Spending, Earning, and Other Money Issues, and finally, Conclusion on the Challenges of Designing Academic Strategies. So, uh, a couple of these chapters uh, are particularly pertinent to to the academic path, but I feel that uh, a lot of them uh, are applicable to any uh, any person who's looking into developing their career and uh, developing um, uh, the, you know their uh, their CV and and developing their own career uh, in in the job market. So, uh, Abel, uh, tell us a little bit more about the Scopus Diaries. And um, how you came to write them, and uh, and uh, you know what what uh, publishing this book has brought to your life. Yeah, so I called uh, I called the post about the Scopus Diaries. It's called, I called it "Fail Again, Fail Better, and Then Write a Book About It." <laughs> because I never meant to. I mean, in the first instance, I was never interested in writing the Scopus Diaries until the vice rector of the Vinitsa Medical University one day after a seminar came to me and said, can I have a copy of your book? I said, what book? Oh, the book about publication strategies. And I said, I have not this book. And then I went home and I was like, well, if you were asking for such a book, maybe I should write it. And this, and incidentally, this is something that I have been doing for, for, for years just not knowing that it was so important. Because um, one day, I mean, I'll be very honest, I just wanted to work, I mean, I wanted to go to Armenia, work with a friend with Armenia in Armenia, and he was like, okay, there is a Swiss fund, if you apply for it, I'm going to help you write in the application, and then we're going to have time to just to, to hang around and to discuss other projects. So we applied, we got the money, and I was the scientist in charge of kind of um, supervising the, the team, or not supervising, advising the team about how to get published internationally. So I went to Yerevan and I, I, I kind of I delivered the workshop, a two-day workshop about what are the chances, I mean, what are the, the attitude, the strategies that you should use to get your research published if you're, if you're not already famous. So they were kind of starting scholars, I mean, the junior scholars, how would you start, I mean, how would you be able to deliver what the, the grant, what the donor was asking for, which was international publications? And there were historians, so the, the book, the, 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 the project was about history, which is not the easiest thing to sell, especially if you are from a region where the social sciences in your mind has been very, very kind of underlooked, or underdeveloped. So... I asked my friend just to record the, the whole workshop and then to, to, to transcribe it. And this is the, the, the skeleton, or this is just the, the raw, the, the sushi, the, 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 the rope, the rope of the, of the um, sashimi, of the sushi, of the, of the scopus there is, because this is the draft I went back to once the, the, the vice rector asked me to, to, to give him my book. But in the beginning, it was just 
something that I put on on Academia Edel, and I asked people to comment, and that's all. And I was even thinking no publisher is going to be interested in it, so I'm ha very happy just to buy the ISBN and just to publish myself. Because I also wanted, I mean, it's the book of my life, so I want it to be accessible. I want everybody to read it. I want everybody just to to have access to it. I don't I don't care about the getting published with a with a good publisher, and I don't care about get, getting money because anyway, you never get rich from from academic. Just wanted to release it. Yeah, I just wanted to write. That's that's a that's the basic human need. They say I just want to express myself. You do your radio thing, I do my writing, <laughs> and and you have fun. Uh, and then one day, I mean, I was also, of course, you never give up the idea that maybe somebody could be interested. So I, I sent it to Z Books, which is a radical publisher. I say, well, maybe you're interested. And incidentally, the 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 director of Ibidem, which is the the publisher that then kind of got it, had just returned from a Scopus seminar. And he said, Abel, it is extremely useful and is extremely important. I support the project. I mean. And I say, okay, I let you support the project at, at one condition, that the price is going to be the lowest you can offer. Because even if it's going to be sold, and I'm very happy to have to pay for the to the production. So I understand you're going to have to pay for your, your people's typesetting and the cover and your work. So I'm very happy to help you as long as we don't sell this book at 100 euros just like all the other books. So the initial price was to be 1290 for the book, and then he promised for he promised five ninety nine for the ebook, and I think five ninety nine is very fair because it's just two coffees in a in a kind of average Central European capital, uh, and I wanted people from outside of Europe to be able to, to buy it, and even if six euro in Paris is not six euro in Lagos. Uh, I understand that six euro you can still gather them, yeah, yeah. and I'm also ready to. And the publisher also did. If you want to publish some part of the book, just do it for free. Just do it if you want to share it somewhere. So it was the best possible approach. What has happened is then uh, I got so motivated that the book moved from forty thousand words, it used to be a short guide, to eighty-five thousand words. So the publisher said we cannot sustain this price uh, by printing more than I mean double. Of the pages here, can we and and also there was a misunderstanding. So in the end, it was selling on 1999 and 1990, which is still uh, kind of we are still in the kind of lower uh, lower rung. We're talking about 232 pages here. Uh, anyway, it, it's it's not it's it's good value for for the the amount of information that's in there. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I mean, when I buy a book, I usually buy, I mean, when I buy a book that I just read like this for fun, it's between 10 and 20. So I think it's fair. And also, if you want to save, I mean, I can also, sh I, I've shared the book. You can read, you write the review when you get it for free. And the ebook still sells at 5.99. So if you, if you really don't have the money to buy it, you can just buy the, the ebook and it's fine. So it is accessible. And sending it around, of course, you have people who are more, I mean, the, the funny thing about this is that there are more people, some people, they expect to get all the things for free. So whenever I go to Central Asia, they all say, okay, can, we, can you give me a book? And I say, yeah, I'll pay for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And in some other places, like in Finland last week, I was selling and everybody was happy to buy it. And I would say, it's not for me. It's just supporting the project. That's uh um, so getting back to the content, because this is, but I mean, this is important for the content because it's, I mean, that's my ideological commitment, which is I want material, I want knowledge to be 
widely accessible by everyone. Um, and then the book was based on my personal failure. I mean, how I kind of fell out of academia by kind of making the wrong choices at some point and how little by little I was able to, to get back and to get a niche. And I, a niche came when I understood that in the UK, I had no future because they are very, very, I mean, they were looking for very specialized kind of uh, profiles, whereas my profile is not specialized. But at the same time, there are other countries with that which are more relaxed about this. So that's, uh, that's the niche part. And, and then it was also, I mean, I was also relying a lot about on, on things that I wanted that I thought that would be useful, but that was not, I mean, I'm not the genius of marketing. I'm not, I mean, I'm not so good at those things, but I also understand they are needed. So it was also a motivation for, I mean, a motivator for me to, to go and look into those things. How to promote your, your stuff, how to show that you are kind of active. And by doing this, I was in, uncovering so many things like by reflecting on how academia works that I decided that the book would not be extremely politically correct. I mean, it's somehow irreverent sometimes. But I tell things as I see them. And a very good remark that I got from, uh, from Raul Pachekovega, who's, uh, who's got the blog, and he said, well, the good thing about your book is that you're not telling people how they have to do things. You're telling people how you did things. I mean, how did you manage? And then they can choose if follow your path or they just go another way. I showed the reasoning behind my choices. So if I do this instead of this, it is because I consider those factors and those factors are pondered this way, and which means that eventually that's my choice. And what is your choice? I don't know. I don't know, what, I don't know which university you are. I don't know which country you leave work. I don't know if you want to, uh, what kind of career you want. Yeah, well, uh, you, you write uh, in the introduction to your book, you write, um, and this this is, you know, Touches very close uh, the, the the like the central uh, interest of of the Papa PhD podcast. You write when someone needs to decide where to enroll. In addition to the question, "What would I like to study?" An important question a prospective student or their parents will ask is, "What are you going to do after you finish?" Um, you know, clearly you 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 navigated a lot of this uh, on your own, but for sure you had a lot of questioning that happened in, in those different moments of pivoting and, uh, and looking for solutions. Um, given your experience and, uh, and thinking maybe of, of some of, of, of what you wrote in the book, um, how, what advice can you share with young people either considering uh, a master's or a PhD uh, or that there are in their PhD and are now having this, these uh, these questions. Can you sum up some main uh, main advice, main insights that you can share with them? Uh, there is a book written by a former mafia man in New York, and the book is called "What the Mafia Man Can Teach to the Honest Businessman." <laughs> and in the book, he gives. I mean, he's a kind of redempted. Mafiosi. So he used to work for Mafia and then he understood it was not really his cup of uh, tea and he moved out. But he also noticed that in his structure, in Mafia structure, I mean, word is much more important than when you do business. Because when you do business, you have a word, but then you have the small clothes and small letters and you screw your partner because, because of money and they say, oh, sorry, it's only business sense. 
Um, so in the book, there is a quote that I, I always cite, which is, love what you do, and you will never work a single day in your life. And I think that this is perhaps emblematic of whatever, I mean, whatever you want to see your career. I mean, if you do what you like to do, you might not have as much success as you might expect to have. But in the end, if you have a job and if you have success doing something that you hate, that's going to consume your, 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 your liver much more than if you are poor and happy. So the point is, you should just look for what, it's not what you want, it's not looking for happiness, but looking for something you are content with. I prefer the expression content because happiness is kind of goes in peaks. Oh, I'm so happy now, but you cannot be happy every day of your life. But you can be content. You can just go on, you can go to bed and say, I'm, I'm very, I mean, I'm very pleased with what I, I've done today. And if today was not good, it's simply because, okay, something happened, but I know that tomorrow is going to be good. Instead of having a job that it could be even well paid, and you're like, I hate my job, but I'm going to work one more year because I have to pay the mortgage or because I want to buy a bigger house. And in my view, it's just, it's just important to believe in whatever you're doing. And then at some point, you will find your, you will find your niche here or there. And your niche is not necessary. I mean, you should not measure success by money. I mean, you can make money. Okay. But money, it's just one of the indicators. It means that the society, money for me, whenever I accept money, means that the society appreciates you and that somebody is able to or willing to spend the money for you, which is rewarding. But once you got the money to eat, the rest is just about you work with people that you hate or you work with people you have fun. You're doing the things you, you're happy to go for a beer after work with your colleagues or you're just looking forward to escape because you, you just cannot stand the environment you are in. Uh, are you happy to do extra work just because you know that it's going to bring you something good? Or you say, oh my God, if I don't do extra work, I'm going to be fired. And, and that, that's, what, that's your motivation. So as long as your motivation is positive, which is not fear of be fired or fear of fail, but it's positive in the sense that I believe, I, I, I'm having fun doing this now. Um, I think this is useful. I believe in what you do. That's, that's the only, to me, that's the only way to go to have a balanced life. Then you can have you can have a fantastic salary and you hate your life. Or you can, there are many other ways of having success. If you if you measure things by making more money, just do it. I mean, it's not that's not what I like, but some people might like it. So, in my view, I mean, for me and for the people like minded, is just believe in what you're doing and make sure that you have fun and you're happy with what you're doing. So try try to make choices that are aligned with your values, with your core values. Yeah, with your spirit, with your values, with your kind of what you feel in a certain moment, uh, which is different from a, from a choice on the emotional, oh, I want to do this now, I want an ice cream because I want an ice cream now. I mean, you can also get an ice cream now, but just try to feel, try, try to look into yourself and see what I appreciate, what, is the, what are the most noble goals for me, what are the things that at the end of the day make me, make my, my, my life feeling kind of. That's very, very good advice. And, and, uh, I, I think uh, you know there's a lot of of talk nowadays because because you know because of the media the way it evolved and and uh, the taboos that have been broken but a lot of talk about mental health and I think what you're saying is key is key to uh, being able to either do your job or do your or do your grad school research 
but keeping keeping uh, your mental health uh, while while developing these these projects which often you know are, are stressing or are stressful uh, and uh, so I, I think it's very 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 uh, good advice and, and a very very good uh, um, way of thinking and just one thing I mean I don't want people to think uh, sometimes I go to bed I'm dead <laughs> I mean really I'm, it's not that my life is like okay today I mean just today today I had a very good day I didn't work much I went to the sauna I went to swim but there are some days where I go to bed late and I'm, I'm stressed and I'm, at the same time I don't feel that this is coming from something that is imposed to me it is like I have an objective and I know that for some days I just have to work more and there is, there is no escape. I can still pull out, but I don't want. And I don't want because in the long term, that I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I, I believe it, it to be done. That's awesome. But otherwise, I try to go to bed early. <laughs> so you're human. That's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm, I mean, don't, don't think that I'm, I'm this kind of guru now. You're going to follow me and, <laughs> and it, your life is going to be perfect and you're not going to overwork one day in your life. Sometimes I overwork. I stress. I, I, I mean, I'm nervous. I eat chocolate sometimes because I'm a, but this is not what I do every day. And this is not, I don't do it in a way that I say I hate my life. I do it and I say, okay, I know that for this month I have to suffer because I promise to do those things. I really want to deliver those things. And if I do them, then the, the rest of the year is going to be fun. And now thinking, uh, and again, su super good advice. Uh, you know, take care. Self care is super important. Uh, and and uh, if if, uh, if you love what you do, like you were saying, you you can find the will to 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 finish and and to complete your tasks. And then take a break after if you need. I, I agree totally. But now um, I'm thinking of uh, now people who are young. You know, they're they're following the path of the of the professoriate. They're doing their postdoc and thinking, okay, how how am I going? How am I going to get to to tenure uh, in in X years, um, given given what you what you've written and and given your experience, which is we, we've we've heard what your solution to that conundrum was, um, but for people who are now like stressed or or anxious about that, do you have some advice for them to to uh, you know to maybe uh, see the light at the, at the end of of what can seem to be a tunnel? Uh, then for tenure. I don't have the advice. I mean, I think there is another person who has more advice than I have, which is, I read a blog post, which is amazing. It was about, it was a, um, a girl, I mean, a young woman, who was ten in tenure track at Harvard for seven years, and she was extremely stressed in the beginning. And then the whole blog post is about how she overcame all those fears. And the, the blog is called The Seven-Year Postdoc. And she says, well, instead of looking at this as kind of a 10-year track, I say, this is a seven-year postdoc. That's fantastic. And instead of thinking, I'm going to have fun when, I, when I'm going to have tenure, I say, I'm going to have fun now. Um, and I, you try just not to overwork. So I would advise anyone to read that one because I think I don't remember the name of the author, and I'm so sorry because she's very, very nice. But you know, you know what we're going to do? You're going to give me. You, we're going to talk after the interview. You're going to. We're going to find it, and I'm going to put the link in your show notes. Yeah, and the link is, by the way, also in the Scopus Diaries. I put it because I think it's very important. So the important thing is, do what you want to do now. It's like just remember, even you remember when you were 17, 11 months, and like 28 days. And you were like, in two days, my parents are going to let me do whatever I want. I'm going to be 18. <laughs> yeah. And two days pass, 
and nothing changes <laughs> because for you, you are 18, but for them, you're just two days older. So it's don't do, don't, don't kind of postpone what you, what you, what you want to do simply because you think, oh, I'm going to get tenure and then I'm going to have fun. If you don't learn to have fun every single day of your life, you just forget about it. And then you're going to moan the rest of your life. So it's true. It's, it's good to be stressed. It brings adre- adrenaline and then it brings you kind of desire to, to go further. But at the same time, don't overstress and think that your life is going to be over if you don't get the professorship because this is absolutely not true. And all the greatest successes, they start with a failure or several failures. I mean, success is the byproduct of failure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And again, I agree with you. And uh, often, uh, tell me if you agree, when you go into science, and, and I remember feeling this, you, you see, you've been taught uh, examples of different discoveries, scientific discoveries that, that were made and developments. And what what doesn't happen when you're taught these things is that people people don't tell you well there was we we got to this conclusion but before that we had a thousand failures to have this this result and and i think it's a very important point and we, we got to this conclusion because we forgot to to to, to close the 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 the, tra- the, the stuff <laughs> yesterday and actually it was a good thing <laughs> and it's like at first i was fired and then there was um yeah like the story there's a very short story if i can the, it seems that the engineer, the, the Russian engineer, I mean, the Soviet engineer that created the, the, the plane, Antonov, was claiming that the, the plane would, would be able to land even without engine because it was the, the aerodynamic was such. And, um, and I, I mean, I know the story because the grand grandfather of my ex-wife used to be a pilot of Antonov. So, oh, wow. I mean, those is kind of, and he was also flying with Stalin at some point to Tehran. I mean, it's, it's a long but the, the, the story is that the story goes that on Kazakhstan, flying on Kazakhstan, the, 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 pilot, the main pilot gave an order that it was understood as switch the, end, the engine off. And they switched both engines, and the, the plane stayed without engines, and they had to have an emergency landing in the, in the step. Now, the whole crew was arrested. Because they say you kind of it was an under it was you were it was a threat to national security. Uh, you were doing something crazy and so on. When Antonov learned about this, they say no, no, they they deserve a medal. They have demonstrated the fact that the plane can land without. I mean, can you measure the consequences? Yeah, they have demonstrated they risked their life and they have demonstrated that Antonov can land without uh, the thing <laughs> without the engines. Yeah. So just this is it was a complete failure. Then then he went the other way. So. I mean, I don't know. All my, all my best. I mean, some of my best things they were coming from. Oh, I was not accepted for this job, and then something else popped up. And it's not just. It's just that by not getting. I mean, not getting one thing, you just let yourself open to other things. And at some point, and then at some point, you also have what I call the career accelerator. I mean, at some point of your life, you can never imagine when you will get a position or you will get a task. It's going to accelerate your career because it's going to make you meet lots of important people or lots of interesting people or it's going to give you the time to think. And then you're going to progress much faster, not necessarily in your career, but in your view on the job market. And that's going to impact you a lot. And then you're going to work, at the, you're going to again start at a, I mean, work at a normal pace. And then you're going to have another accelerator that's going to bring you faster and so on. And you can never predict when this is going to happen. It could simply be when you fired and then you got another opportunity somewhere else. Yeah, but I feel that at at this point, because you can't predict, one of the things you need to do is 
keep always keep an eye open to opportunities and and, uh, and be ready to have conversations with people that you cross in the elevator or yeah be open and also be i mean train yourself to live in uncertainty because there is nothing certain even if you have a tenure track you i mean your head of department might change and you might hate them or hate her so much that you want to change up or if you are in the business sector your company might bankrupt anytime or I mean, even if you have a, I mean, a permanent contract doesn't mean that you're going to stay there forever. So it's just an illusion. I mean, it just has, yeah, it's like when you cuddle yourself in the, in the, in the illusion that things are going to last forever, but nothing lasts forever. And you know, even in the 21st century, everything is fast. When you, we, you read, the most you read is 280 characters, no more. Mm -hmm. I mean, how can you have something which is permanent? <laughs> yeah, we don't have the careers that our fathers and grandfathers uh, had, you know, that, Uh, in, here in the states, they say they said uh, you start a career and then you you can you know that you're going to have a gold watch uh, when you're when you hit uh, retirement, right? That's over. That's 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 not like that anymore. Um, yeah, the, the, I, I I agree with you. We're not in that time anymore of 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 having one job, one career all your life, and and even I think people now more and more want to have a diverse uh, career and they change there's there's numbers on uh, on uh, how many years it takes in in average for someone to change jobs but not only that people do multiple things uh, a little bit like your like like your path where where you found a way to not only do the, what you loved academically but then develop projects that that you love and that and that's that are your that fulfill you in 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 different and more profound ways also um So now basically uh, what what I'd like to do now for the end of the interview would be you know thinking of of the the, the listeners uh, out there you know be they be they on the academic path or not um and and again based on your experience uh, and maybe thinking of people who might be uh, who might have the preconception that you know there's only one path to follow uh, and and that may be anxious that they fail maybe give them some advice and uh You know, give them some hope and and maybe some tools to make sure that uh, little failures are part of of life, especially once you start uh, doing doing grad school and uh, and doing research. But that small failures uh, doesn't mean that you can't have a, a fulfilling and and content life. Small failures, big failures are part of life. <laughs> Last year, I submitted a project. I was demanding for a million and a half viewer for the project and I completely screwed the budget and for some reason I mean actually my assistant did it and he didn't check so it's my fault uh, and then we demanded 250,000 to fulfill a project that was ne that needed under half an, one and a half million so basically I was praying not to get the project but when I discovered that I was completely shocked because I was like oh my god this has been a month of work and I've kind of I let down all the partners because they were counting on me And it was horrible. And it was also the realization that I'm human and like, oh, it will never happen to me what well, it happened. So I think it's difficult to tell somebody who is now kind of depressed because of failure, don't be depressed because I think it's normal. I just think it's normal that life has up and downs. And I think that the downs are the time when you, you, uh, you have I mean, it's a gift in the sense that you take some time. I mean, you have the chance to take some time and devote some time to your life and to look at you, into yourself and to say, okay, who I am, what I want, when I'm going. And even if this is very, very heavy, uh, I think this is 
a great opportunity to to change. I mean, and, and I'm saying this from, I mean, I divorced like three years ago. And at first, I mean, it's been very difficult, but I, honestly, I missed the time. I missed the time because it was a time when I, when I just say, okay, today I'm not going to work. I'm just going to write. And I'm just going to say what I'm, I mean, I'm just going to write how I'm feeling and what I'm doing. And I also, I don't want to work on those things and I don't want to do those things. And I'm just going to look into myself and see why all this happened. So in terms of failure, a divorce is also, I mean, I, you can also live with a huge failure. And then you have to understand why this, this happened. And, but it's a chance also to understand why you're doing things and what you should not repeat in the future and why you got there. So I don't think the small failures are part of life. I think big failures are part of life. But big failures are, as long as you can keep your mind sane, and I mean, as long as you don't go crazy, it's, it's, a, it's a moment when you say, okay, let me stop for a moment. The world is not going to end if I don't work for, for a few weeks. Or for, and let me just see what I can, I mean, what I have to address, what are the points that I need to address in my life to kind of straight it up mm-hmm. a bit. Excellent. Those are. This is a great way to to finish the interview. I think it's very inspiring and very true. And like you say, one, one again, one note: mental health is not. It's nothing to be ignored, uh, and uh, it, and it's an issue in in uh, in, in graduate students. Uh, and uh, and I'm sure also that that people looking for tenure, like you were saying, you know, they they may deal with stress a lot. So deal with those things. Give yourself time to heal whatever needs to be healed. But for sure. Uh, like like Abel was saying, take time when you have these these big failures. Take time after that to reassess and find the the path to to uh, to something something better and learn also learn the lessons you need from from those failures. Because I guess and tell me tell me if you agree, one of the things after this reflection is is the lessons learned, right? Yeah, but I mean think think of a when you have an accident, you break your leg. You go to the doctor and the doctor say, oh, you have to see, you have to take some rest. Okay. And they, they give you some exercises and, and nobody ever tells us that you can also break your leg in your, in your head. I mean, something can go wrong with, with your brain. I mean, you know, we're using, I mean, especially people who have intellectual jobs, they use their brains every day. So football players, you go there, you run, you, you tackle, and at some point you break something or you kind of, uh, you get an, you got an injury. There is no acknowledgement that also the brain can get injured, and that is not permanent. I mean, we have also this perception: oh, if it's if the brain has some problem, it's something permanent. It's mad. It's is stupid. It's whatever. It's like no, the brain is a considered a muscle. At some point, the brain has something that goes wrong, and which is something that will happen to everyone in their life. And then you, the only thing you have to do is to take some rest, just like the same thing you do when you twist your ankle. You take some rest. You twist your brain, take some rest. You break something, it's more serious, take some more rest. Or even go to a doctor, and the doctor will say, okay, we should address this, this, this. It's just, it just part of your body. So yes, mental health is important, but it's important also to acknowledge that we have, uh, we have to, not just to look after that, we, just, we have the right to, to be ill for some, point, for, uh, for some time. Definitely. Abel, this was a great conversation. I had a, a lot of fun talking with you. Uh, and uh, I think uh, you, you show us, uh, me and the listeners, uh, that, that there's not, again, just one way to do things and that you can tailor your, your career to fit your values 
and uh, and to fit your rhythm uh, and uh, and to have a, a content and happy professional life. Uh, so uh, Abel, before we finish, uh, where can people find you? Where can people follow you if they're interested in in your uh, in your path and uh, and knowing more about you and about the Scopus Diaries? So uh, I'm on Twitter, just with my name and surname, Abel Abel Colesse. Uh I also have a Twitter for the Scopus Diaries, which is Scopus Diaries. The book itself it's on sale for the North American market on the website of Columbia University Press which is the official distributor of the book. Uh, and I'm on LinkedIn as well. Uh, same name and surname. I mean, no, nothing to hide for the moment. Um, <laughs> so that's more or less. Um, but I'm more, I mean, I'm usually more on Twitter than on LinkedIn. So that's... Uh, Excellent. I'm trying to kind of build an audience. So just, yeah, if you want to do a favor, just follow me on Twitter. So thank you very much. Thank you. And, uh, and uh, good luck with promoting the book. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas, and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests.